If you didn't need the money, would you still show up to your job? I'm John Weems. I've spent half of my career in the corporate world and the other half in full-time spiritual guidance as a pastor. I respect people of all views unless they are totally closed-minded a-holes. I am not here to tell you what to believe. I am here to encourage you to think beyond the check. Welcome to this podcast where we talk about work, life, and the meaning of our time here. You'll hear from a wide range of business people from multiple backgrounds. Most of my guests pursue their passions from a combination of offices, coffee shops, and airports. But today I have the honor of meeting today's guest in a much less conventional work environment, Diablo Rock Gym in Concord, California. And as cool as this gym is, Hans Florian is most famous for his pursuits in one of the most beautiful and truly awesome venues ever, Yosemite's El Capitan, which he has climbed more than 150 times, including several world speed records on the famous nose route. Uh, Hans, thank you for joining me today. Hey, well, thanks for the plug for Diablo Rock, Joe. Yeah, come early, come often. That's, <laughs> that's what we say. So uh, some of our listeners have been fortunate enough to already find their big why or their precious, as, as you and your book co-author say, while others are still searching. And uh, when asked why in the world you would climb El Cap so many times, your response has been, I'm not sure that's the right question, so how about this one? Why on earth would anyone take a job they don't care about for 261 days a year every year? Or this one, why would someone who has a choice settle for good enough instead of going after great? So let's just uh, start, you know, big, deep questions right from the top. How did you develop your mindset of pursuing greatness, Hans? Well, I'll say it didn't come, like, immediately. You know, I I went to... a college in Cal Poly San Luis Obispo and like what are you going to study you know when you're 18 you, people ask you what are you going to study what are you going to be I, I'm like I don't know so I took business because I figured whatever I end up doing I'll probably need business you know then you're graduating from college and like well now what are you going to do what's shouldn't you know by now what's great what what's your passion and you know frankly I'd tried lots of different sports from tennis to soccer to track and field and I did well in track and field but and, it, and, you know, it's great actually standing up on a podium and people cheering you on and stuff. And I've always been an athlete and a, and a competitor to a great degree. And I discovered climbing while I was in in college days in the dormitory. And I started really liking that, the whole idea of having this quiver of tools. And you can go up all this wild terrain outside and adventure. And I thought this was really neat. But then I think what why it became a passion for me or something that I could like excel greatly at was that I realized this sport or this recreation was becoming a sport. And here I was involved with it at this critical time where a recreation had become a sport or was becoming a sport. And I'm like, Oh, I'm a competitor. I like this. So, um, you know, frankly, a lot of young man ego things like I'm going to climb harder than someone else, or I'm going to stand on the podium at the X games or, um, the national championships, that's pretty neat. You know, um, I found I could go to Europe and compete against the very best in the world. And I, you know, I joke, I won, uh, 3 million lira in Italy one time, <laughs> which amounted about $1,100. But for a young man in Europe in the early nineties, that got me through like three more months of travel. So, it, you know, these things may seem shallow, but like recognition by your peers that you're excelling at something is sometimes enough to keep you along the path and that competition climbing really kind of did keep me along the path of okay you know community recognition people around the world would recognize hey you did something in Yosemite and that's the mecca the you know the the center of the universe for climbing world and 
I would have people invite me into their homes in France and Germany because I held the speed record on the nose route on El Capitan in Yosemite. Mm. And that, to me, was just so memorable that all these decades that I've held the record, I kept getting it back because I, you know, internally felt like I'm recognized. My peers, um, my my industry, my community respects me. Yeah. So you'd, you'd mentioned briefly that, uh, you know, you were okay at track, I think a little more, uh, you know, all-American pole vaulter, correct? Yeah. So was that was that kind of your first taste of greatness, or was there something even earlier? I think that was. I mean, I had a, a college coach, um, Henderson, and, you know, he had this thing that attitude was more powerful than anything else. And, you know, it's tough working out day in, day out, but like, and track and field is thought of more as an individual sport, and, but he's one of the track coaches that got everyone together so much, uh, I guess, team enthusiasm. One year, we all shaved our heads. Well, you know, nine out of ten of the yeah. male athletes shaved their heads, and to get some guys in high school to shave their heads is pretty impressive, I mean, I thought, and we'd all wear these same t-shirts that would say attitude, and it was we all individually performed at our best on the meets where we did that as opposed to, you know, just trying harder on our own, you know, and each person probably had their own reason to do well. Some of them went on to the Olympics. Um, others were after, you know, a, a medal at given competition or something. But our, as a team, we went on to the national um, in our division. So it was interesting to see everyone's individual scores went up because there was just all this camaraderie amongst us, you know, pushing us all together. Yeah. Now, for, for those of our listeners who are learning about climbing, definitely you know, go to YouTube. You can see plenty of amazing videos of Hans. Uh, check out uh, his book on Amazon, On the Nose, which is now available in audio. So definitely learn more as your uh, interest is peaked here. Talk a little bit about climbing the, you know, the sometimes team aspect when you're, when you're climbing with someone you know, versus individual. Kind of how do you... Uh, how do you approach the two? Is there is there a preference? What well, uh, what should people know? Awesome question because when you think about going out climbing, well, you have to have a partner, right? So in some ways it's team, but in the whole aspect of competition climbing, it's just you and the wall. So it's not you, you know, beating up somebody else, or um, it's always you quote against the wall. Um, so it is very individual, but yet the majority of climbing I do is with a partner. The record on the nose is set with a partner. Um, much mountaineering climbing, you have a partner. Um, it's it's very ro- rare that you're going to have a solo climber. I mean, we have Alex Honnold kind of out there without a rope, and kind of he's the Tiger Woods of our sport, kind of brought climbing to the mainstream because he's just done all these incredible feats. But um, for me, the physical movement of climbing, because it involves the tip of your toes, the tip of your fingers. It's a wonderful exercise in and of itself, but there's all these problem-solving things when you go to Yosemite. You're going up a 1,000 or 3,000-foot cliff. You're climbing a crack, and it ends, and it's blank granite above you. You've got to swing over left or right, and you have to figure out logistics. How am I going to swing over there, climb up, and, oh, now I've left gear back right into the thing. These might seem like simple little mathematical or whatever pragmatic things, but climbing involves a ton of thinking out problem solving. You know, this one I explained is, you know, just rope management from one crack to another. But then what if there's a 50-pound haul bag you've got to bring up? How do you leave it down below? How do you bring your partner across? And then there's just the simple fact of, like, you're in a climbing gym and you're climbing 10 feet and you don't know how to reach that hold up left. And 
I joke that invariably women always outclimb men in their first time in the gym because they tend to look all around them for solutions, whereas men look at their bicep and try to just pull harder. Mm-hmm. Um, climbing is very finesseful. You have to problem solve and find out you know, where your weaknesses are. Is there an undercling over there? Do I lift my leg up? Do I twist my body left or right? So uh, strangely enough, we have a lot of um, Ph.D., um, professors from Berkeley climbing at our Berkeley Ironworks gym. Um, hmm. Kind of the classic old guys with the long gray beard. Um, but there's a lot of very cognitive science folks that climb because I think it just really engages your mind to do all this problem solving. Whereas, you know, weightlifting or going on a treadmill just doesn't cut it really. Yeah. So. You can't just do a bunch of curls and, and yeah. climb. There's a lot more to it than that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's, as, as many are kind of thinking through work, and I'm sure some are, are envious that you have have made uh, you know, your, your passion, uh, your life in such a profound way. Let's talk a little bit about you know, growing up. Um, you were a military brat, as you've shared. Talk a little bit about how that shaped you. Well, you know, people go, was that hard to move every three years or four years and lose, lose your friends, right? And I'm like, I didn't know that all kids did that, didn't do that, right? I just assumed everybody moves every four years. So I'm like, wasn't it hard for you being in the same place all the time? So uh, I didn't think that as a burden or a hardship i just thought it was like oh i get to new you know find a new neighborhood meet new friends uh, try a new school yeah now you you'd mentioned you know coming out of college people saying what are you going to do what are you going to do as a you know as a kiddo as a young one how did you view work based on what you saw through your parents and you know kind of the world around you yeah i'd say that my parents were both sort of protestant work ethic i mean my father would go away he was a doctor in the military a veterinarian uh, science mm-hmm. and um, he would go away in the morning come back in the evening go away in the morning and then as we got older my mom would take on what job she could she worked for a real estate company for you know property management company she'd work wherever she could and um, you know there was no idle time sort of thing so I thought that's what you do as you're adult. You know. yet my parents found time to take us camping take us on trips to see national monuments take us to you know memorials we lived on the east coast quite a bit so often it was you know civil war and uh mm-hmm. whatever type of memorials and of course washington dc we were regular at museums and stuff so that was um, between camping you know on beaches and parks and museums i thought my parents did a good job at showing us things outside of you know regular school yeah um and so i thought hey you know that's that will be my course i'll go get a degree i'll work in you know yuppie environment one way or another or and I will work 40 hours a week, and I will take vacation with my family. That was kind of my vision, right? Yeah. yeah. Do you have any early memories of a, a dream job, even as a, you know, even as a really young one? I wouldn't say so much a dream job as that. Um, I never was much of like a. I mean, I, I watched some sports when maybe in high school, but mostly I, I just preferred doing as opposed to watching. But you know, you'd get into these phases where you'd watch football and. Things And I particularly remember one time, like, I think it was a NASCAR thing where they coming up and interviewing someone and the person had STP logo on their thing and, a, and Duracell and like probably 12 different companies sponsoring that person. And I'm like, why are they sponsoring this person that drives a car, right? And I thought... What could I do someday? Could I be a pole vaulter that gets all these logos of you know power bar or you know cliff bar or whatever? Um, mm-hmm. Would my sport ever be that big? Where you know and 
for some reason I felt like what could I do in climbing to make it so that that's a possibility for somebody because I didn't think in my lifetime it would happen. So I'm, I took over the executive director position for the national governing body for competitions, you know, for climbing. And I mm-hmm. worked really hard bringing all these sponsors in from Petzl, PMI, to Blue Water Ropes, to Black Diamond, you know, and tried to get them to support comps. And sure enough, five years later, I was in the X Games, and I had this jacket on that had, like, six logos on it. And I was just like, I've arrived. And, you know, I didn't think it would happen in my lifetime. So, and STP that, you know, didn't sponsor you, though? STP did not no. sponsor, no. No. I haven't gotten into it yet. No. Well, no. you know, maybe, maybe they're just figuring it out. Um, what was your first paid job? First paid job was picking weeds. Yep. I remember the minimum wage was $3.35 an hour. On my hands and knees, walking through a business, you know, crawling through a business park, pulling weeds in between bushes. Yeah. Yeah. And so when you when you did finish it, at Cal Poly uh, went, uh, went down the yuppie route for a while. What did that look like? What did you do? Well, interestingly, I, I interviewed with three companies. One of them was a Foster Farms chicken ranch up in Turlock, and they were going to let me manage a chicken farm mm. because Cal Poly is a big ag school, mm-hmm. but I was in the business section. And then my other offer was from a manufacturing fil- facility in downtown Los Angeles, Parker Seals. They make high-tech fuel door seals for jets. They make the space shuttle battery, and they make low-tech seals for I don't know, oil drain plugs, right? And they needed somebody to kind of keep the line moving, the sales going. Like, that seems more exciting, downtown L.A., so I just took the job. You know, what's the offer for pay? I'm like, I don't care. i just going, you know. Um, and that was 50, 60 hours a week um, because I was learning new stuff. And I, I think there is when I realized, like, somebody who comes straight out of high school that just understands, like, it's okay not to know what you're supposed to do, but you're going to learn and you're going to learn fast. Um, that in college, you're really supposed to show that you can learn. You learn how to learn, right? And there was so much stuff I didn't know, and they were asking me to do in this yuppie job. You know, go and schedule all the NC machines and these workers for it. I'm like, I don't know how to do that. You know, and this was the age of the first PC computers, right? And like there was a computer department doing IBM punch cards, trying to figure out where product was. And I was totally confused, right? We had never done this in college. So, and I was working, I was working till 9 p.m. at night trying to figure out what I was supposed to do. And I was really fortunate that I had two or three other people who had graduated from Cal Poly the year before. Mm-hmm. And they saw like, yep, I was just like you last year when I got hired. So I had a lot of people kind of shepherd me along saying, it's okay. It's okay. You don't know. You're going to know. You're going to figure it out. Um, I think that's really important is to get in over your head sometimes. Mm. Um, there's a lot of quotes like from, I think, Mario Andretti. If you're, un- if you're under control, you're going too slow. Mm-hmm. You need to be a little bit out of your comfort zone, you know, all the time. So in those those first couple of years at, at Parker Seals, what was your what was your relationship with money like? What was your financial philosophy? I was pretty frugal, um, bringing from a Protestant upbringing. I, I had paid off everything I o- owed for school within I think within like three or four months of working because mm-hmm. I didn't have a fancy car mortgage payment. I didn't have a, a house payment. I had the cheapest apartment I could find within walking distance of where I worked. Um, so my relationship was stock away money till when you need it or until you have a vision how to spend it in your, on yourself, mm-hmm. invest in yourself. 
because it's kind of the universal power. I don't think of something as like money is evil, but money is power. And whether you want to be Mother Teresa and use that power to help kids in Africa or you want to be, I don't know, someone who drives around Ferraris and Maseratis. I don't know that those are the two extremes sure. there, but like you will need it. And so I didn't know what I wanted to do with money, but I knew that like buying a fancy bike, buying a fancy car, all that wasn't going to make me happy at the moment. So I just lived frugally and and piled it up. What part, where was climbing in your life at uh, in the Parker Seals days? That's interesting because I, um, I learned climbing um, while I was in college and I felt an obligation to finish track and field and I, I loved the, the com- competition and the, and the rivalry and the, the camaraderie of it. And then I realized I needed something to replace that with and climbing was it. But I also felt like I owe it to this new company that I've, you know, signed a deal with that I've got to give it my best. And I was, I was working 50 and 60 hours a week, but I would be climbing Tuesday, Thursdays after work for three hours. And I'd go to Joshua Tree National Park from Friday at, you know, 6 p.m. until Sunday at midnight every weekend or, you know, 40 weekends a year um, and become back red-eyed and tired Monday morning and my boss would be like, boy, you had a hell of a weekend and everyone thought I was a partier, but I was just climbing my brains out, yeah. right? Um, but I showed up because that was my upbringing is you show up for work and you you know, you know, don't call in sick on a Friday so you can have a three-day weekend. That's that's not part of my purview. So so as you, you share in your book, and again, I encourage everyone to read it or, or listen to it, now available on audio, um, you know, you're, you're working hard, you're called in by your boss and I think your boss's boss yeah. what happens so yeah I, I've now worked uh, almost two years with them and I, I'm realizing like gosh I'm I'm climbing they had the very first ever US national competitions and I got invited I went and did well they're now having World Cup competitions and, and I'm going to everything I can and luckily I'm a yuppie so I can afford to fly to Boulder and do this competition and fly to Seattle and do these competitions I'm thinking, wow, I'm in my mid-20s. There's this new sport arriving, but I'm just not spending enough time climbing to do it. What if I just quit work? Like some people quit work and go travel the world. You know, what if what if I just quit work? I don't owe any money. How do I tell my boss? Because my boss loves me. I'm doing really good work. I've got a raise four months ago. And it's becoming springtime, which for climbers is pretty important. So here it is, February and I'm like, gosh, I got to tell my boss, I really want to quit so I can go do the spring season. And out of the blue, he invites me into the conference room and his boss is there. And they say, Hans, you've been totally kicking butt. We know you work hard and you've learned all these new skills. We want to give you a raise with this new position, blah, 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 like a significant raise. And significant. And I'm like, oh, I don't, I'm just like, <laughs> probably sat there silent for a long time. And then I just broke it to him that I, I really want to, I really want to quit and just go on the road rock climbing. And there was uh, a book that was influential in your life at that time. Uh, Atlas Shrugged, is that right? Yeah. 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 What, what role did that play in your decision making? Um, I think it's that even when the status quo or the, the majority of people believe that you should do X, Y, Z, they may not be right. You know, Hmm. just because 
uh, I, I, it's hard to put it. I mean, Atlas Shrugged is such a gigantic novel. It has so many concepts about things, um, political statements, economic statements about capitalism being all great and everything. Um, and I've I've turned my view from it, but mm-hmm. the main fact of it is you can be right for you, and it's not right for the rest of the people around you, mm. and that's okay. That's probably the number one rule I got out of it, mm. or message, is that what's right for me to quit my job and go climbing isn't right for everybody, and I'm just going to have to have the will and the confidence in myself that that purpose, if you want to call it, um, is enough for me and I should pursue it. Yeah. For some of our younger listeners who may not be familiar with the term yuppie, maybe already Googled it by now, but uh, young, upwardly mobile professional, I think, something yeah. like that. So you, you are now uh, literally upwardly mobile in a totally different direction. You've you've <laughs> left uh, Parker Seals. Um, in, uh, in your book, one of the things, the, the first line of the first chapter uh, says, I was pretty sure I was about to die. Um, how does pursuing a passion with, with such inherent risk influence uh, your daily life when you're not climbing? Uh, I'd say that when, and when we call it in business, like I call it like eating the frog, mm-hmm. like, Oh God, I know I have to fire this person today. Don't wait to the end of the day. Cause then you're just, you know, you're stressed and worry about it for all eight hours of the day until the end, fire them in the morning. Right. The same thing. Like if you've got, you're going to do a big climb, you're in Patagonia and the, the hardest part uh, you've got to face it. It's, it's, it's places positioned somewhere on that route, if you will. And to sit there and worry about it all the time up into it is just, you realize that stress is, may make a mistake earlier on. In, in climbing, you don't often get to choose when to confront the frog or the, the worst part of something. You're constantly um, on edge, ready for it. Cause you know, there's a lot of co- tough consequences in climbing. Um, especially if you're an alpinist and on, crazy terrain um and so i've realized like i'll business i'll write down my five highest goals that i've got to attack today and i'm like oh that's the one i don't want to call her and tell her that she's Mm -hmm. fired or whatever it might be or i don't want to do a sales call because i'm afraid of rejection right you know what get the sales call all the way early in the morning get rejected and then move on you know the Mm -hmm. more um i counsel a lot of people on sales and like you know, the only thing better than getting rejected is getting rejected 10 times because the 11th rejection is way easier than the first, right? Very true. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. So you dealing with uh, adversity is, is uh, you know, nothing new to you. Yeah. I'm sure some of our guests who are just getting to know you may have looked you up. And, you know, presently, one of the first things that will, will pop up is notice that you had a serious fall just in, in May of 2018. So just uh, just five months ago, uh, having had that experience, uh, let's talk a little bit about perseverance. Um, how do you process adversity you've faced, and, and how are you doing at the moment? Uh, so th- this fall, I, I fell in the middle of El Cap. It's a 3,000-foot granite wall. I fell 15 feet, uh, but that was enough to break my right heel and my left leg at the tib-fib, so I was completely incapacitated. I couldn't use my legs. And um, I had a partner, Abe Shreve, um, He's an incredible business coach, so happens, and an, an incredible climber. And he was out of sight when I fell. And he comes around the corner and sees that I'm on my phone. He goes, what are you doing on your phone, huh? So I'm like, well, I'm calling the Rangers 911. And, and he's, why are you doing that? And I'm like, oh, I broke both my legs. And just, you know, calm, deadpan is all heck. And 
you know, we talk about this thing, me and Ab's like, well, what do you do in crisis? Either you laugh or you cry or you panic mm-hmm. or um, you, you're calm and cool, collected. I was probably in shock and just um, and just was probably thinking out. I've thought about what to do in these situations before. I've helped others in this situation before. And, and what's the number one thing, you know, that's important to do here is stop, think, and, you know, proceed with what the best knowledge you have is. Um, at one point during the the rescue, well, we hadn't been rescued yet, but it was an hour in and we're waiting and there's now the wind's blowing really hard and I can't help Abe um, organize ropes and stuff. And he's got to get this huge tangle undone out of the ropes. And I'm like, well, Abe, I can't move very well. If I tap my foot, I go to a pain level 10 out of 10. How about I shoot a video for social media? Mm-hmm. And Abe gives me this look like, what are you talking <laughs> about? I'm like, well, dude, I can't help you. So let me shoot a social media video. It'll be like a story on Instagram. He's like, don't do it, Hans. And I'm like, God, I'm not doing anything. That'd be helpful. Somehow. So I sh- proceed to shoot this silly video. And um, I think he he really concisely said, you know what you did, Hans, up there? You know, this was days later. You did what you could. You didn't focus on what you can't do. Yes, you can't climb up because your feet are broken. Yes, you can't rappel down because your feet are broken. You focused on what you could do. You let me lower you down to the next ledge, you know, and you shot a video for social media. Maybe that wasn't super productive, but um, we did what we could. You know, people so many focus in business like, oh, I didn't get that loan. Okay, you didn't get the loan. So what can you do? Can you apply for a new loan? Can you look for money somewhere else? Can you finance a different way? You know, you're always looking for solutions. And I think I learned in spades, you know, and Abe had to describe it to me. Like, Hans, what you did is you did what you can do. You didn't focus for one millisecond on what you couldn't do. I think in one of the interviews you said that at that time it felt like you were watching your life through another lens or another perspective. Did Were you even conscious of that at the time or just being in shock you were just I think I wasn't conscious at the time I was just like I'm not going to cry um yeah I'm in physical pain that I've never felt before but and I probably did shed a tear or two there but once you, you know I you just don't have the physical ability to wail cry crying for f- 5 or 10 hours um, however long it took to get rescued but um after the thought I thought I'm getting my medal tested hmm. um I've joked that I'm kind of like Job this year as I'm going through an amicable divorce with my wife, mm-hmm. broke my legs, my kids are leaving the house because they're going to college, and it turns out that there was a fire at, in Yosemite this year that was burning around my house. I'm just like, next will be the locust, right? Mm. And I'll be really getting tested. I'm like, I'm just going to sit and watch from afar here and see how Hans does. How is his character going to handle all these things thrown at him? Yeah, just loosen your grip and yeah, see what happens a little. Mm-hmm. Wow. Now, as we share in the beginning of every episode, our listeners represent a broad range of spiritual views, and our intention isn't to uh, push any particular one. In in your book, uh, you wrote that if climbing were a religion, sending the nose would be like getting baptized, which is a very you know, very powerful yeah. language. Um, can you describe a little bit about your own spirituality in, in climbing, in life, maybe some of the, the spiritual frameworks you were exposed to growing up? Yeah, I mentioned earlier I was a military brat, so I I was brought up in Christian schools every other place I sat, so I I know the Bible pretty well. Um, But 
it so happened the last place we landed in California, the public schools were really good, so I didn't have a church upbringing in high school and beyond. Um, but I, I go back to like why I think climbing, if it were a religion, I think finding something that you're passionate about. And some people, I can, a lot of my friends in climbing, they have a group called Solid Rock that are climbers for Christ. And I find them to be pretty darn happy people because they've found something in addition to rock climbing. They found Christ that is good for them or a rock that they can count on, right? Um, I've found that I can count on climbing and many of the people in climbing as a go-to. A great example is you get up at 3 a.m. in the morning and... You feel like, could I just go back to bed right now? And and I realize, like, every time I've gone and done a three-hour workout before I do my eight-hour job at an architect engineering firm or wherever I'm working at the time, I feel way better. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, sometimes you go out drinking. It feels great with your friends, but you know the next morning it's not going to feel good. So you can pass on drinking with friends. But working out, maybe it's hard a little bit here and there or training for some goal or the actual performance of a climbing activity but afterwards i always feel part of its physical the endorphins in you but uh, a lot of it's the sense of accomplishment mm-hmm. and um it's tough for climbers to feel purposeful because it's pretty ridiculous what we do we climb a vertical wall you know i mean nobody's putting shoes on kids in bad neighborhoods we're not saving lives in ethiopia but you're focusing on what you do and when you're happy about what you're doing and you're not harming others, golden rule, you know, I'll do it. Um, I found that uh, I focus so strongly on trying to perform my best at climbing the nose of El Cap or climbing some sport route that people have come up to me and just said, you know, you really inspired me to try my best at whatever they were doing. Mm-hmm. Like we've mentioned that you know, I've had people come up to me and say, I went and did the Peace Corps for two years. I've done Doctors Without Borders for the last season because you, you just kind of opened my eyes to try really hard at something that I love. I mean, we have a saying here at Diablo Rockham, do hard things. What mm-hmm. we mean by that is, you know, the easy things are usually not that rewarding. Getting up at three is not easy, but how you feel afterwards is pretty awesome. Well, it sounds like getting up at, at three and, and, you know, exercising, climbing, everything you do is, is spiritual. Are there any other spiritual practices that you have found to be helpful now or through the years? Uh, oof. uh, I have a lot of friends in Berkeley. Um, and I, I mentioned that cause to me that just brings up, uh, I don't know, hippiness a little bit and mm-hmm. very liberal views and everything from Chinese medicine to, to meditating, uh, Eastern influence perhaps to some degree. And, um, I've tried meditating a number of times and, um, I haven't been coached, I'd say expertly at it, but I, I find that it's, it's good to find a routine, um, something as simple as before bed, you know, uh, think of something you did good to that last day. Mm-hmm. Think of something, not that you did bad, but something you could have improved on. Mm-hmm. And then think of something else you did good. I always like to start with something good and something bad. Yeah. So I think simple little practices, that simple. Think of something good you did that day so you're appreciative of how well you acted. Think of something you could improve on. And then think of a, a second thing you did well. Simple things like that get give you a structure that you, well, I feel that it's important to have a mental part of your life, mm-hmm. a spiritual part of your life where you're trying to improve. 
trying to be the best you can. Yeah. So on the climbing front and, and sort of the, the spiritual crossover, some through the years have, have criticized you for bringing competition uh, to an activity that many have described as, as Zen or, or mm-hmm. spiritual for them. What is your perspective? How, how does it all blend together? So I was in college, never knew anything about climbing. person approached people and said, hey, anybody want to go out climbing? It happened to be a named Alan. He was, in my opinion, the classic blue jean cutoff, torn, ragged T-shirt, smoked illegal drugs at that time Mm -hmm. Um, um, and he climbed because people told him you're not supposed to do that and perhaps because of the nature nice scenery it took to him but um, I wanted to try it because there's all these cool you know nuts and tools and webbing and rope and you get to go over terrain like i said before that you can't go you get to conquer terrain you get to use your physical skills and your mental skills to try this quiver of tools to get through things but quickly i found that like wow athletically they're starting to rate these these problems and things and now there is a sport and by seven eight years into it they were making it a sport a competition and I was finding climbers w- that were much better than me. I'd see them at Joshua Tree. I'd see them in Yosemite. I'd see them at Rifle, Colorado, all out climbing me. And when it got to competition day, I would get higher on the wall than them. And it was confusing to me, and it was really frustrating for them because they could see me on an easy route on the weekend in Rifle or the week before or Joshua Tree, and then they were utterly frustrated that I was beating them at comp and I think it was that I had had a long history of being told what to do track and field you ready set go gun goes off or whistle blows done for the quarter or whatever and a lot of climbers had been like my original mentor they did it because people told them not to or they Mm -hmm. the love of nature which is there's nothing wrong with it at all but they weren't there for the competitive lay it all on the line and so the folks that are early on, I think, that were thinking I'd sold out the sport, I think that they now see that there's just such a huge embrace of all these kids that are coming into the program, mostly for competition. Um, but kids like being rewarded for their ability. They're innocent about it. And I know adults do, too. And I think the biggest thing I can point to is that when I took over as the director of the competition thing... I listed everyone that competed, and I put them in order from first to, I think at one point we had a list out to 450 people. And I had a call from somebody who said, you got my score wrong at a local in Alabama. I should be ranked 187th in the U.S., not 193rd. <laughs> and I'm like, people just want recognition. <laughs> Their name's in print, like on a list, right? Yeah. And um, I... I that would just crystallize it to me. They just want recognition, you know. And I think that it's just as important to on-site a 13C out in a crag somewhere in Colorado with only two people watching. That's um, an achievement. But to do it when you're told, when you walk to the base of an artificial route in a gym or at an artificial wall in a stadium in Vail, Colorado, or wherever those competitions are going to be held, when there's a crowd of 300 people, that is an exceptional skill too. Grace under pressure. Can yeah. you perform the Sermon on the Mount right there when <laughs> everyone needs to hear it? You know, can you 
onside a 13C now. You've got to start in 40 seconds, and time is ticking. You know, it's a. I, I like it more than the onside out at the crag by yourself, peaceful, because it's it puts more pressure on it, tests you more than. Mm-hmm. And I like to be tested. Hans, so our listeners can appreciate how fast your climbs are compared to kind of where history began. Sort of walk us through the first people who climbed El Capitan to, to you. What kind of delta are we talking? So in the 50s, they'd see a sheer face of half dome. It's cut to half dome, right? And the sheer face was 1,900 feet tall, which is the height of most skyscrapers that are very high now. They thought you couldn't climb that. Well, Royal Robbins, Mike Sherrick, and Jerry Galwall climbed it in five days, right? Unheard of. A guy named Warren Harding walked around the back half dome, congratulated him, known to say, I can do something better. So he went and did the face of El Cap, which after five days of work, he got maybe 500 feet up on a 3,000-foot face, so he kind of failed after five days. But he spent 45 days spread out over 18 months and finally topped out on this wall. It took 12-day push um, which is coming up actually this November, the 60-year anniversary. So naturally, once that 3,000-foot wall was shown to be climbable, the second ascent three years later only took seven days, right? They knew they could do it, so they just sat on it and went up. Third ascent took three and a half days because the mental barrier had been broken. By the late 70s, a team climbed it in a single day, which was kind of amazing because this is a grade six route. Well, when I first climbed it in Yosemite, um, I would never think to climb El Cap. I'm even a very good climber as I was. I couldn't tackle something like that. I failed my first time trying to do it. In 1989, I climbed it in two and a half days, and I asked the best big wall climber in the world, Steve Schneider, if he would climb it with me for the record, and we did it in eight hours the following year. So I went from two and a half days to eight hours, which mm-hmm. was pretty amazing. Um, Quickly, the re- record got broken a few weeks later by some locals. The next year, I did it in six hours. Quickly, it got broken again. The next year I did it, I teamed up with someone who had broken it with another p- person, Peter Croft. We did it in under five hours, right? So as the decades have gone on, it's gone down to three hours and two and a half hours. And then just recently, uh, Alex and Tommy, um, Tommy Caldwell and Alex Honnold, climbed it in just under two hours, an hour and 58 minutes. Mm. This is amazing because today, this season this year in the fall the average climbing party will take three days to climb the route that means competent climbers that can do it will take three days to do the route Mm. Um, so i've got to see it go from you know 10 hours in my time of climbing to two hours i mean that's unheard of to think of like a marathon going from 10 hours to two hours which is what the record is on marathon right now just over two hours right what's what's still on your list what what are some goals you still have to achieve well i'm 54 um in the alpine mountaineering world lots of people do their best mountaineering in their 50s and 60s but i'm i'm a t-shirt and shorts climber i don't have enough persistence and body fat to go up to mountains big cold mountains so i'm going to continue to do things in sunny uh good rock climbing areas that's more more sport and athleticism and less risk um I'd love to get um, up El Cap with my daughter. Um, I went up with my son last summer. Um, I'd love to keep hosting uh, climbers from the world around um, that are 
younger because they haven't been to Yosemite yet and be their host in Yosemite and show them Yosemite climbing. So it's, it's so much different than other places. So I'd like to be involved in, I guess, uh, introducing Yosemite to some of the younger upcoming climbers. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I try to ask all of our guests, Hans, uh, last question. How do you define success? I think success is really something for people that are mature and experienced in their world. Like I don't think a 19 and 20 year old, most 19 and 20 year olds, they have probably moments of happiness and maybe moments of feeling rewarded, but you need to do, and they, and they are successes, but I think you have to have confidence in yourself that what you choose is important is, um, is purposeful and you feel happy, content, rewarded in doing it. Because I can see pictures of me topping out after climbing Half Dome and El Cap in a day, and I'm completely exhausted. But I have a look of contentment in me and happiness. And I really did feel more successful, more happy um, than I ever have any other time in my life. And when I look at it from an outside person's perspective, just like, guy you just kind of climbed up some rocks and walked around the forest and stuff like what's so purposeful about that well i defined it and i believe in it and um i think everyone's got to develop in themselves what's important to them and go after it push themselves excellent hans thank you for pushing yourself um many blessings on your continued recovery from your injuries you get back up there and thanks for joining me today welcome great having me here and glad you came to diablo rock Gym. special thanks to my friend david Tragg for the introduction to hans i invite you to follow hans advice to do harder things and eat the frog as early in the day as possible until the next episode keep living beyond the check